if you would take your Bible or your device, I don't know if I'll ever get used to saying that, and turn to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. We're going to look at a very practical portion of Scripture uh, from the book of Exodus. Understand, we do not live under the law, but the timeless principles of personal responsibility are spelled out in some minute detail in the book of Exodus. Other places also. Remember, many of these principles existed long before God gave Moses the law. They exist today and they will exist until the end of the world. Primary and unchangeable principles that have to do with personal responsibility. Um, I don't think anybody's going to be surprised if I say I am very disappointed in the world we live in where personal responsibility is at a minimum. People just want to blame everybody else. I, I, I get so tired of hearing every, every lawyer in the country, or not every lawyer, lots of lawyers in the country, every other advertisement on TV is... If anything, if you look this direction, you smell that, you were close by, or anything else, uh, you can sue. That just drives me crazy. Somebody should take responsibility for their own actions sometimes. By the way, there are real reasons for doing things. But we need to understand God makes us responsible for our own actions. And we need to take that responsibility seriously. We're going to talk about two things this morning. We're going to talk about justice. That's why you have the little scales thing up there. Because justice is civil. It's governmental. It's not personal. God, under the law, had justice. Justice simply means this. A penalty equal to the crime or the whatever was wrong. In 450 B.C., the Romans in Latin came up with a phrase, lex talonis, which simply means an eye for an eye. That wasn't a new concept. It had been in the Bible from Genesis chapter 9, where it said, if you take someone's life, you forfeit your life. Many other cultures in the world and other countries have that same mentality. If you do something, you pay in equal. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, etc. You'll find that even in the Bible. Some civilizations and some countries take that beyond that. For example, in Islamic countries, if you're a thief, you don't just have to pay back and make restitution. You lose your hand. You know, that, that's not biblical, but that's where it goes. So it is a just penalty, a penalty equal to the crime. And we need to keep that in, in uh, our minds. But I use something in counseling all the time, and I, you've probably heard me do this before, but principle number one in counseling, I am responsible and accountable for what is under my control. I'm not responsible primarily for you or for anyone else. 
I am primarily responsible for me and accountable for my actions. Now, if you're a pastor, you have some accountability for the congregation. But I don't really have control. If you're a parent, you have some responsibility and accountability for your children. Well, let's face it. I was a child once, and I did not always do things that honored my parents. Probably you didn't either, and if you have children now, you know that uh, they don't always do what they're supposed to do. You can't stop that. But you can take the actions that are needed to remedy that. So we need to see that whole thing. And responsibility, the key word we're going to look at this morning, is the duty to be accountable and to deal for what, with what is under your control and accept the blame or the praise as a result of that. Personal responsibility. So we're now in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. And I'm going to do this very quickly. Uh, there are t- uh, 20-some verses, and I have... a. Not much more, about a minute and a couple of seconds for each of these verses. So we're going to get through it. But you're going to see a repeat and a repeat and a repeat in every area of life that you can almost think of. For example, Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Notice there is the degrees of criminality. It's a ascending scale. It's true in the United States. It's true in most countries. If you steal something shoplifting, there's a penalty for that. But if you steal somebody's car, there's a higher penalty. I believe they call that grand theft auto in the United States. In other words, if there is more impact, there is more consequence. For that action. In this case, it says, and notice what's true here. We're going to see a second one that says something different. But if you steal something and you kill it, eat it, sell it, whatever, there's a higher penalty for it. If you sell it, you just steal it and then sell it, you pay a higher penalty. Not only do you have to give at least one ox back, but you've got to give four more on top of that yet. Why more for an oxen? An oxen was a more important animal because you could use it for plowing, pulling a cart, or work. Sheep, they're important too. And as we go through this, remember, much of the personal wealth and property of a person in those days was wrapped up in their livestock. Today, for most of us, we might have a pet, but we don't have any, well, no, we do. We have one farmer that's in the audience today. But other than that, uh, we don't normally look at our wealth or our property in terms of animals. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, that absolutely was true. And so they were the chief part of that. But that stolen item was valuable, and you needed to not only pay it back, but pay compensation on top of the restitution. And that is true here. Now, verse 4, I want to make this clear. It says, if what was stolen is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he must pay double. So this person uh, 
got apprehended, they got caught before they sold it off or before they slaughtered it, and they were required to pay double because they hadn't gone that far. But these are legal obligations that were they were responsible for. It is based on the magnitude of what happened. Understand, being a thief is simply stealing something by deception. You're sneaking it. We're not talking about robbery. Robbery is a different. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But robbery is different because that is taking something under the threat or actual use of force. And there's, there's a difference between the two. Biblically, there is a difference between the two because the penalty can be very much higher. Now, why do I say all of that? Look at verse 2. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltness on his account. Verse 3. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltness on his account. How do you account for that? Here's the way it is. There were no electric lights. There was no electricity. Uh, There were no security lights in those days. If someone broke in your house in the middle of the night, it's dark. You don't know why that person is there. They may only thinking they're going to sneak in and sneak back out. But you don't know that. You cannot identify that person. You don't know why they're in your house. Today in law, they call this the castle doctrine. If you don't know what it is, it in essence says from common law that a man's home or his house is his castle. He has the right to defend the occupants therein. That's castle doctrine. It's Pennsylvania. It's United States, basically. All of the rules that we have in law come from biblical principle. They've been eroded in the past few years, but they started as biblical principles. And so in the middle of the night, somebody is in your house. Did they come to murder you? I don't know. Did they come to rob you? I don't know. Remember, those are things that use force. I don't know if this guy's trying to sneak in and sneak back out. But in the middle of the night, if he's there and I whack him over the head or shoot him or whatever, uh, it says, I'm not guilty. He was where he shouldn't have been, and he was up to nefarious uh, purposes, but I don't know the full extent. On the other hand, and this is really, really important, if it's in the daytime and that you find somebody stealing your chickens or your ox, you don't have the right to, to do bodily harm to them. Why? You can recognize him. Now, what he's doing is totally wrong, but he's not threatening you. If he's threatening you, that's a different story. Using force, that's a different story. But this person is trying to steal something. You do not have the right at that point, biblically, to do any harm to that person. What you can do, and we're going to see what happens here, is you can identify this person and be, have him be brought to justice. Because it says, if the sun has risen, there would be blood guiltness. So if that would happen during the day, you're wrong. You, you don't have the right to do that. He wasn't trying to harm you or any other occupants in your house. So the justified use of any kind of deadly force or force even at all is not justified. 
Now, what happens if you do catch this? He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, he shall be sold for his theft. Now, we don't do that today. We put people in jail for stealing things. That's a penalty. You can do that. But biblically, what you had to do was return what you stole and then add to it. In other words, the restitution and the compensation was not made to the government. It was made to the person who was the injured party or the offended party, the one you stole from, and you need to give it back. And if you stole and you couldn't pay it back for whatever reason, you were actually sold into slavery. Now, I'm thinking that would cut down on robbery and theft today if we did those kinds of things. We don't. But... um, I'll tell you what, when they talk about uh, justice reform, if it was you have to spend the rest of your life paying back what you stole, I think people would think twice about stealing things. And a lot of other things for that matter. You know, you may not have put them uh, as a slave because most of us wouldn't have anything for a slave to do. It would, they, I don't know what they would do. We don't, we don't necessarily own business and we're not agricultural. But if they had to give a chunk of their paycheck for the rest of their life till they paid back what they owed, uh, it would possibly make a huge difference in what happens. But the principle is, if you do something, there is a consequence, and you're responsible for meeting that consequence. Uh, We already looked at verse 4, because if it is found um, alive in his possession, it's payback double. If they had gone further than that, we know what that is. You have to pay back four or five times uh, what you stole. What about your own possessions? What about responsibility for what you own? It says in verse 5, If a man lets a field or a vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. Here is the whole idea in law that says if a couple of guys rob a bank or a a couple of guys are in this scheme to defraud somebody of something, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if it's the front man or the guy that planned it or the guy that conspired or the guy that's driving the getaway car or the guy that's fencing the goods. All of them are equally liable. You see, this guy didn't go over and graze his neighbor's field or take from his vineyard. He didn't do that. He sent his animals to do it. He is responsible for that. It's the, in law today, he had a part in doing it. And if you have a part in doing it, you are also responsible for the whole. That's a law that we all know. How about for your actions? In verse 6, it says, If a fire breaks out and spreads the thorn bushes, so that stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. This is carelessness. Am I responsible for my actions if I'm careless? The answer is unequivocally, yes, you are. Did you plan to burn down the neighbor's field or his grain or any of those things? The answer is no, but you allowed 
something you're doing to be out of control. You were careless. And carelessness absolutely requires you to be accountable and to be responsible. And I wrote in my notes, oops is not enough. <laughs> you, you can't say that. I remember, uh, and this is still true to this day, whether it's a dog or cattle or whatever, if you own an animal and it gets loose, I don't care if it's a dog that gets loose or cattle that get loose, and it causes an accident, you are responsible for that. Did you open the gate and let the cows out? Probably not. Did you let your dog get out the door and go bite somebody? Probably not. You didn't intend it. But you were careless. You didn't take responsibility for um, what you owned and for your actions. I remember as a, a young guy growing up on the farm, it wasn't very often, but at least two or three times, we got a knock on the door late at night. No cell phones back then. Or any of those kinds of things. You get this banging on the door, and somebody was at the door. You don't know who it is. And they're saying, uh, we don't know if they're your cattle or not, but out in the middle of Route 22, that was the big, big, um, highway back then, uh, there are cows right close to your farm here walking around on the, on the pavement. Okay, there's no other cows around, they're ours. We get out in the middle of the night, you get woke up by dad. Hey, we got to go chase the cows back in. They got out the fence, whatever it was. You know why? And we would have the truck lights on and flashlights. And I mean, you work for hours because they're spread all over the place. Some of you probably have dealt with this already. But you know what? If they cause an accident, you're the one that's responsible. Did you plan that? No. But you are still responsible for your actions, and your property. And so if it causes somebody else harm, you have a responsibility. And so we did everything we could do to get the cows back in, and we did. Um, And we never did, praise the Lord, never had an accident. Praise the Lord, somebody stopped and told us, because we wouldn't have known till the next day, or maybe even longer, um, if someone wouldn't have told us. But You had initial control, the fence was up, the leash was on, the door was closed, whatever it is. You had initial control, but somewhere along the line, carelessness or an accident, uh, you cause harm, you're responsible. Are you responsible for keeping agreements that you make with someone else? For example, verse 7, it says there, If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, And it is stolen from the man's house. If the thief is caught, he should pay double. In this case, this is not a business dealing. This is, hey, could you keep this for me? Could you hold it on my behalf? So you're entrusting your wallet, your credit card, your vehicle, your animal. It doesn't matter what it is. You say, hey, could you hold this on my behalf? And somebody comes in and steals it. Um... You're not responsible because it's been stolen. The thief, when he's caught, he has to, as we've looked before, has to pay double. Now, if he had sold it or slaughtered it, that would change. We already know that principle. But here's where it goes, and you need to look at these things very carefully. Verse 8, if the thief is not caught... Then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether 
He had laid hands on his neighbor's property. So, you're holding the other guy's wallet. Say, hey, can you, can you keep this for me? Or their luggage. Or you name whatever it is. And it's gone. Normally we say, and I agree, you're innocent until proven guilty. In this case of responsibility, it is you're guilty until you can prove you didn't steal it. Wow. Is that a high responsibility? Is that a lot of pressure? The answer is yes. Make sure you know what you're saying yes to and what you're agreeing to. Because you have a responsibility. And if you could prove that you didn't steal it, uh, then you're off the hook. Verse 9 goes on to say, For every breach of trust, that is, any transgression, whether an ox or a donkey for, uh, or sheep or clothing or any lost thing, about which one says, this is the case, both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So if you can't prove that you didn't steal it, you got to pay back double. Responsibility is a word that is really out of vogue today. But God doesn't look at it that way. We are responsible. Again, this is not a business deal. This is just personal interaction between uh, two people. We'll look at business deals here in a moment because it, it's um, very clear about that. Verse 10 goes on to say, If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid hands, that is, stolen his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. There is something as anticipated or expected risk. It is risk that is inherent in all of life. People today want to have risk mitigation. By the way, I totally agree you, you want to eliminate as much risk as possible. But it's not possible to eliminate all risk. And so if something that the guy who you've uh, given it to to hold for you, something happens that's beyond his control, you are on the hook for it. He's not required to do anything about it. The idea that there is accident, there are accidents, there's normal wear and tear. All of these things are accepted. So if you lend something to someone and they're using it or they just have it and it breaks, it's on you because that's anticipated risk. Now, on the other hand, verse 12, but if it's actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the, the owner. So if it's stolen, you haven't been responsible. You've accepted responsibility, but you haven't made provisions to carry out that responsibility to the fullest extent, and it's stolen. Guess what? You owe them back. So if you have your neighbor's lawnmower and somebody steals it, you owe them a lawnmower. That's, that's the bottom line of this whole thing. But there's one other caveat that goes with this, verse 13. 
If it is torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence, and he shall make, not, not make restitution, for it has been torn to pieces. In this case, we're talking mostly about animals as the possession or the, the means of wealth. And so, if some carnivore, uh, a coyote, a wolf, a cougar, or whatever animal that would eat your sheep came along and it ate one of them, you didn't have a thing to do with that. You couldn't prevent that. But what you did have to do is say, hey, there's the carcass. There's what's left of what happened. You need to show that as proof that you didn't do it, but that it was done by some other wild animal or, well, yeah, be a wild animal. But what about business dealings? What about lending stuff to people to use? And what about actual Business dealings. That's a different story. And we're going to see this again toward the end of the the chapter. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor, I borrow stuff all the time and I lend stuff all the time. And and we do. So how should I look at this? The Bible's very... See, I can honestly tell you, right before I got saved, I started reading the Bible for the first time in my life, and I read the book of Proverbs. Being the practical, hands-on guy I am, it got my attention. For the first time in my life, I said, the Bible makes sense. I was actually reading the live, I was reading Proverbs out of the Living Bible. And I'm like, this really makes sense. And that's what caught my attention. I got saved about six months later. But that caught my attention. The Bible is so practical and reasonable. And it has common sense. Now, unfortunately, today, common sense is not all that common. We used to call, use your horse sense. You know, at least think ahead as much as an animal would. But people don't do that anymore. They like to blame everybody else. But anyway, that's a side issue. What about this? If a man borrows anything from his neighbor... Think of anything you want to put in there. And it is injured or died while the owner is not with it. He shall make full restitution. In other words, if I borrow something and I break it, I'm obligated to compensate the owner. No, I didn't do it on purpose or anything like that. But I have a responsibility to pay him back. You know, either get them a new one or pay for it or fix it or whatever you need to do to compensate and pay it back. But it says, its owner shall not, um, I'm, I'm sorry, if the owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. It is hired, it came for its hire. So, if I'm doing something and I take a piece of my equipment and uh, you hire me to do a piece of uh, some kind of work. And I'm there and I'm using the equipment and you're paying me and it breaks. The person that I've hired myself and my equipment out to is not responsible for me. I'm responsible for me. Now, it might break while I'm doing that job, but it's not because of that other person's fault. He's not responsible. I'm responsible Think about this. You, you got. I, I, I encourage you to go back and read this over a few times, because I think it'll bring some common sense into our thinking, and uh, it, you might be able to even explain this to somebody else. Because people today don't think this way. 
Unless you disagree with me, you can feel free to tell me that. And by the way, if you come back tonight and you want to discuss all these kinds of things, we'll spend a half or three quarters of an hour tonight discussing these and and having a conversation about this. I think that would be a very interesting topic to deal with tonight But uh, at, at our evening Bible study. But what about morality? Starting at verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. There are a number of things you need to look at there. First of all, remember, God has given men headship and responsibility. And that we have to read it that way because it says the man's on the hook. I'm not telling you the lady doesn't have responsibility. But in this case, it's basically saying he's taking advantage of her. When you look up the words, he took advantage of the situation. When it says not engaged, if you have a King James Version, it's got it right. It's betrothed. Remember, betrothal is not the same as our engagement. Engagement is a promise that you're going to be married. Betrothal is that you're actually contractually already married. You don't live together. You don't have sex together or any of those kinds of things. Uh, But you're already considered husband and wife. So this lady is not attached to any other guy. She is not married. And uh, guy's a sweet talker. He talks her into doing things they shouldn't be doing. He has to pay a dowry and now catch this. The words to be are not there. The insinuation is, if you do that, you're marrying her. Now, in olden times, they called that a shotgun wedding, right? Okay, you mess with my daughter, you are marrying her. But that's not where it ends, because there's one more verse that goes with this. It says, if her husband absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. So the father has a final say here. He can say, this guy's a rascal. I don't want him as a son-in-law. I don't want him as a husband for my daughter. I am letting him sort of off the hook, but he still has to pay the same amount of money or the same amount of goods or property that he would if he married. So there's a penalty that goes with that. There's a lot of other things that could be said in this area, but they're not in this passage. But the father can say, you know what, this, this guy here, I already know what he's like. <laughs> yeah, he was messing with my daughter. I already know what he's like. I don't like his morals. I don't like his character. I don't want him to marry my daughter. It would be a bad deal. He can say, nope, it's off. But the insinuation is, if you have premarital sex with somebody, you're supposed to marry them. That's that's the insinuation here. But the father can say, nope, stop right there. Uh, That's not going to happen. The father has the say uh, either way. Now, the next one is perverted and twisted and distorted, but it's there. I got to say it. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Bestiality is one of those things God says is so despicable, the end result should be capital punishment. That's what it says. I looked it up. I, I didn't know how the world looks at this today. 
uh, I found out that most countries look at this under common law as crimes against nature or sodomy. That's the way they look at it. And the penalty, of course, uh, today is a fine or imprisonment or both. Not death penalty in most countries. But here's the deal. This kind, but, but if you think this isn't distorted, there are people today um, trying to get laws passed that you can marry your pet. This is how twisted this world is, folks. So don't think this doesn't apply today. But it diminishes human dignity. It takes away and distorts human sexuality, which is to be limited to the one woman, one man marriage commitment. It distorts that. And it reveals the very bottom of human depravity, which means corruptness or evilness or wickedness. God said, shouldn't happen. These are things that should never happen. But what about your worship? Are you responsible for worship? The answer is yes, you are. It goes on, verse 18. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Now, we don't go around looking for the people in the occult and exercise capital punishment. But uh, God's view is very clear. This is something that ought not to be. And none of us should be a part of that. The, the word used here, if you have another version, it's not going to say sorceress. It'll say a witch, for example. Um, these terms are kind of fluid. They kind of intermix and, and all depends who you're talking to. But in essence, this is someone who is communicating with the dead, or that's what they say they're doing. Trying to give you information or telling you they have information that cannot be gotten in normal ways. And he says, that shouldn't be. Who are they communicating with? I have no doubt that they're communicating with someone, but it's not the person that's been deceased. It's an evil spirit. So it's going to come off with uh, false information. And in that false information, there may be true statements. Remember, Satan and those, his fallen angels, the demons, they know a lot more than you and I do. They've been around for 6,000 plus years. They know a lot and they can tell you a lot of things. But it's still not where we should go. Why? Because we need to make sure that what we base our lives on is true, verifiable information. It diminishes our dependence on the Word of God. It minimizes what God said. You see, God gave us a complete, finished, and perfect work. The principles we need to know are contained here. We're looking at some of them right now. When we go away from the Word of God, we're looking for information in all the wrong places. Third thing is that it takes our trust in a person instead of in Jesus Christ. In every way, dabbling in the occult simply is not God's plan for us. And in every way, we're to stay away from it. Verse 20, 
It says, who sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. That's, again, a death penalty. Why? Our focus, uh, the focus of our faith and worship and devotion is misplaced. He is a jealous God. I am the self-existing, ever-living, eternal God. And anyone that is honored in the same way that I should be is wrong. Don't do it. You're responsible for your devotion and your worship. Verse 29, skipping a little toward the end, it says, You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same of your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with his mother seven days on the eighth day. You shall give it to me. Good intentions of putting the Lord first in your possessions and your money, your giving, is not okay. Said, don't delay it. Delay is the same as not doing it. It's not the same. He said, you need to put me first. The way I describe it from Exodus and other places in the Bible, God wants the first and the best of our increase. He always has. He wants us. And delaying and say, well, I'll, I'll take care of that later. And there are a lot of people that do that. They say, when I get rich and famous or, you know, good looking or whatever, then, then I'll put the Lord first and I'll give him everything I have. And, you know, if I have a lot more than I have now, I'll, I'll put the Lord first. That's not okay. God says, no matter what. But this isn't about size. This isn't about quantity of goods or, serve, uh, or, or money. It's not about that at all. It's about my attitude. Is God first, or does he come after everything else is taken care of? The New Testament doesn't talk about quantity either. It simply says, as the Lord has prospered you. That's not a percentage or anything like that. It's simply saying the more God is, the more privilege you have, the more God has given you, the more that he expects from you. And don't hold it back. That's not a, hey, let's see if we can twist people's arms to give more. No, it's just looking at God's idea of responsibility. He says, let's face it, what you have is because God made it possible. And he's simply asking you to give a portion of that, not all of it, a portion of that back in worship and honor and devotion to him. In verse 28, this, you might See this one in a different way, and that's okay. I'll, I'll mention a couple of different ways. But verse 28 says, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Here's how I put it. You don't speak evil of God, and you don't speak evil of those God has put over you. That could be, in their case, it could be the priests and the prophets and... Those, those people. It also could be those that are the governmental rulers over us. He says, you know, those that God has placed over you, pastors, elders, you know, spiritual leaders. He says, don't speak evil of them. That doesn't mean they all do what's right. That's not what I'm talking about. That You can deal with that. But just simply cursing them is absolutely not okay. You better have a good answer. 
You, you better have a positive view of the whole thing. And he says, don't curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. In other words, don't curse God, and don't curse those that God has placed over you. There are a lot of people that have a lot of problem with that. But what about those that have less than we do? If you're here today, most likely, compared to most of the world, you are a fluent person. You might say, you don't know how poor I am and how much debt I'm in or anything else. We've got it good. I've been to... If, if you've ever, if some of you have ever been to a third world country, you, you just have to praise the Lord every day that you have food to eat and a place to live and a whole lot of other things. I've been to a few of them. It's not a pretty sight. So most of us have way more than we need. So how do I treat somebody who has less than I do? Well, we can start with something that has nothing to do with possessions or money. Uh, Verse 21, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So this person doesn't have the position and the status you have. They don't have the connections you have. What do I do? Now, not all of us are outgoing. There are people in here that are outgoing. My wife is one of them. down at Mount Gretna, they, they, the word is that my wife knows everybody that lives there. That's not quite true, but she knows most of them. Why? She's naturally outgoing. She, knows, she has a friend who's been living there 20 years and didn't know her neighbor. My wife is actually getting her out of the shell. And she came to my wife and said, hey, I talked to so-and-so the other day. Well, my wife was the one that introduced them. So, you know... Being friendly is a, is a positive thing here. But they don't have the connections. But someone that's a stranger, you don't take advantage of them. You don't oppress them. Why? Because God was very gracious to you. You were oppressed in Egypt, then God brought you out of that. Don't act that way. Go out of your way. You do not have to be an outgoing person to put into practice what I'm going to say next. Is go out of your way. Make sure you're friendly. Reach out to other people. And by all means, don't do them wrong. And sometimes doing them wrong is just not even acknowledging their presence. But he does go on in verse 22 to say, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you do, and I'm not going to read it, he said, My anger is going to be kindled against you. And whatever you've done to them, I'm going to do to you. That's pretty serious business, folks. He says, don't afflict a widow or an orphan. Why? They are without the normal provision and protection that someone with a father or a husband would have. And in those days, it was even way more important than even today. We have social programs and all that kind of stuff. They didn't have that. But it said, you go out of your way to make sure that you don't bring any harm to someone who doesn't have the normal provision or protection that you probably enjoy. We need to look out for other people. And one last thing. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, this isn't lending for a business deal. It isn't lending for uh, 
kind of uh, looking for an income and uh, investment. It's none of those kinds of things. This is not about business. This is someone who's poor, most likely poor for a reason beyond their control. So if you lend money to the poor among you, you're not to act as a creditor to him, and you shall not charge interest. I have heard well-meaning, famous people, Christians, who are financial counselors. And I have heard them take this verse and a couple other that sound real like it and just totally misuse them. Because, and I've literally heard them say this on the radio, so it's public knowledge, is, well, don't go to a bank. Go to somebody in your, your congregation if you want to buy a house or a car. And uh, you know what? If they come to you, you, you basically have an obligation if you have money to lend it to them and never charge them interest and, and that kind of stuff. Like, where in the world did you get that from this? It's not there at all. It's simply saying somebody is in bad shape. They cannot meet their needs. You help them out. Now, is there an obligation and an expectation they're going to pay back? The answer is, yeah, I know that from the next verses. But charging them interest, taking advantage of their poor situation, not at all. Not at all. But it has nothing to do with investments or business deals or any of those kinds of things. That's a totally different story. That's a business deal. This is a, we would call them here at Garden Chapel, we call it a, a charity situation. Uh, but it goes on to say in verse 26 and, and 27, uh, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, if you're taking a pledge, that is you're taking something of value that they own until they pay it back, because that's what a pledge is, a security. He said, and I don't know, how, I, I laugh when I read this one, because I'm not sure how this would all work. Because, so somebody is poor, I give them money to, for food, whatever they need it for. For to say, oh, by the way, just to make sure that, that you're on the up and up, uh, give me your coat. Well, it says, and in those days, if you were poor, the coat you were wearing was your, you know, blanket for nighttime. So every night, <laughs> if you took a, a cloak or a, a coat in pledge, you would have to every night go to their house, give it back to them, and then go back in the morning and get it again. So I'm not sure how this all worked. If somebody knows better how this worked. Uh, please tell me. But the point is, you're not taking advantage of this situation. That's the bottom line. Don't take advantage of other people. That's a responsible thing for us to do. Does God require us to be accountable, responsible people? The answer is unequivocally, yes. I am needing to be responsible for me and for my actions. And I also need to be responsible when I'm interacting with someone else. I always have to look out, and this is what I say all the time. My viewpoint is for the good of the other person. So I'm not going to do something to oppress or hurt them or take away from them. I'm always looking out for the other person. The New Testament, and even the Old Testament, puts it this way. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You don't treat them in any way that you wouldn't want to be treated. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, thank you for being so practical. Some of these things, uh, 
in the context are kind of difficult at times to put into practice today. But those timeless principles of responsibility and accountability for our actions and for our possessions and the possessions of others and even the life of others have not changed. So, Lord, make us people, people, that we look out for the good of the others. And we would never do anything that would be detrimental or harmful to others, but that we would be on the cutting edge and we would go out of our way in the area of responsibility and helping others. Lord, thank you so much for reminding us of that this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God. And don't forget to be here next Sunday.